What's up, y'all? My name is Jake. And my name is Carl. And you're listening to Do You Even Lift Pro? Men Exercising Social Justice. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We deeply appreciate it. Today, we have a guest with us joining us for this discussion. Say hi to the people's Christy. Hey, everyone. We'll get to know Christy later in the episode when we directly interview her. But for right now, we're going to talk about men and activism. How are you, Carl? Uh, eh, I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm burnt out, that's for sure. Like, I, this uh, spring semester is always a grind, but I'm here for you, I guess, and the students. I've been, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was, I, I've been saying this a lot recently, and I think a lot of student affairs people would sympathize, but like, we love students and we also love when you leave. So I'm pretty excited for you all to leave. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good. How are you, Jake, now that I, you know that? <laughs> I'm great. Um, no, I'm good. Uh, I had a good weekend. so And I'm actually kind of looking forward to leaving a little bit. You're graduating? Yeah, it's bittersweet. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Sweet. Well, so today we wanted to talk about activism. One of the questions constantly that I get, at least, is what can men do? What can I do? What's the next step? Men want to just do action, which is very different from activism, right? So um, one of the models that I like to use for change is a sort of a stage model. It's awareness, knowledge, skills, and then action. Oftentimes what we see is men come into awareness of something that's up and then jump straight to action and cause a lot of intentional and unintentional harm in that process. And so to help us nuance this conversation around what activism in general looks like, but maybe particularly what it looks like for men, we have Christy in here with us. So we're super excited. Christy's both our bosses. So we have to, I guess, perform a little differently today. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so, Christy, if you don't mind us asking, what is your role on campus and what are some salient identities that you hold? For sure. So I work at the Women and Gender Advocacy Center with both these dudes as the assistant director <laughs> of educational programs. And some of the salient identities for me are first generation Indian immigrant, English as a third language, Indian American, cis woman. I think it's interesting because like usually when I have this question, I like evade the class question so i'll go in like middle class able-bodied yeah those are some awesome thank you for sharing mm-hmm. and your role on campus didn't i do that right yeah now? oh you'll be not listening to me <laughs> come on true. man this is <laughs> so real right now <laughs> an example of Let's, what not to do yeah <laughs> yes if you want to start activism i was start just listen. listening honestly i was ready to just come in here and be like listen drop the mic and leave and be like be better but i mean that is stage I'll stay. one yeah <laughs> that is a component for sure yeah We wanted to start with, like, can you kind of generally talk about what activism has meant to you or what your understanding of activism has been? Um, And we can go from there. Cool. So, yeah, first off, thanks for having me in here. I am really excited about it. Uh, I feel pretty, like, fancy with these headphones and this mic. Um, So I think the way that I wanted to locate this conversation was around even just, like, the word activism. And I, I think of it in two different ways. I think of activism as a survival form of activism and activism by choice. And so what I mean by that is I think about the friend who has to teach her mother what to do when ICE comes at the door. Like this homie probably didn't take an ethnic studies, women's studies, sociology class, but like is very much engaging in a life form of activism rooted in survival. And, you know, she they doesn't have the choice to think about like, oh, I wonder if I want to be an activist today. So many of the amazing activists that have come before us, the generations before us and that come that will come after us are engaged in that type of survival activism where their body doesn't have a choice because it's politicized and rendered invisible and marginal. I don't come here today in that form of activism. I come here in a very privileged activism of choice. Like I get to read books about it and read cool blogs and like chat with you all in the studio about like my 
thoughts that represent one person because I've had the privilege and opportunity to think about these things from a very like, I wonder what I would do tomorrow about it. Right. And I think in that way, I relate to this conversation about how can we as dudes think about activism? That doesn't mean dudes without intersecting identities are engaged in activism as survival. That is for sure real. But like from a more general perspective, I often think like some of the activism as it relates to conversations around men is an activism of choice. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever labeled myself as an activist. (laughs) That doesn't occur to me. You know what I mean? So there are so many people who have it worse, quote unquote, that my work or whatever I'm doing is more of a I guess I frame it more as a service knowing that it's also the right thing to do I don't I have I actually struggle personally with the word activism how about you Jake yeah I think about I think some people will tell me I am an activist but I have a really uncomfortable feeling with that uh because of like I guess the notion of I can choose to show up and it won't affect me if I don't um whether that's like physically for a demonstration or protest or like just engaging in this work like I just chose to be an ethnic studies student my freshman year and that's just how it happened. But I could have chose to be a freaking construction management major and be like every other white dude on campus. Like, (laughs) So I think there's, for me, it's this interesting thought of like, even when I said I was like a student activist as like in Red Whistle Brigade, it's hard to, I guess, validate that, if that makes sense. Because I think I can choose when to engage in it and not as a white cis hetero man with all these dominant identities. So before I got here, I thought about like, OK, we're going to throw around this word activism. And I don't know that I've even put in a lot of work to like defining it. So I wanted to have like a one liner and I came up with activism as the quest and work put into liberation. So then it necessitated, well, what the heck is liberation? And then I said, liberation is being unbound by white supremacist, capitalist, colonialist, cis, hetero, able, patriarchal systems. So then that made me think, okay, well, liberation is just a constant struggle, right? So like it, it, it all circles back. If we're using activism as the means of which attaining a seemingly unattainable goal, what are we doing? I mean, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I think... Framing those constructs, those systems of power as something that also negatively impacts cis hetero white dudes. That's where I get hung up on. Right. Like based on that definition, the struggle for liberation, is it even possible for men then to identify as activists in a gender based anti gender based violence movement? Mm -hmm. Is it possible for white people to identify as activists in an anti racial oppression why can't I phrase Anti-racist framework? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, so th- that's I a really good question. And maybe it's less about identifying as something because that, take, that takes us back to masculinity and like needing to proclaim a truth as for you right. or something, right? right? And so maybe it's less about your individual identification within this movement and more of a recognition that activism, if we're talking about as a means towards liberation is not about individuals. Maybe it's not about you and it's about collective resistance and collective engagement. So how do you fit into the collective as opposed to how do you identify as an activist? Right. And I've talked to men and it's like they want to identify some way with that. And it's like, well, you're wasting your time trying to identify with something while a bunch of other folks are actually doing work. Mm -hmm. So it's just like something that I think is interesting. And then we talk about like allyship and all these other ways in which we would give... I guess maybe men in this context 
some kind of other identity other than just being men, if that makes sense. Yeah. the I think linking directly of I need to be in a leadership position, I need to be visible. If that's sort of the intent and desire behind men and trying to engage in activism, that's where you and I and us are here to say it's stop. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that makes me think about like the visibility of activism, not just for, for men, but like bringing in a racial component like white folks organizing and being active like did you even go to a march if you didn't put it on social media right right like somehow yeah. <laughs> it becomes like you didn't go like you don't need to wear a pussy hat to like be visible right can we engage in an activism that does not collude with the attempt to gain social capital I think short answer is yes. And that means there have to do a lot of internal work because you have to go outside of a lot of constructs that you've been raised in. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think the push for recognition in any sort of liberation movement is an expression of white supremacy and patriarchy. And so when we're saying men in activism, we're saying, how can you take the guidance of people that you want to like activate with in Mm. a sense right so the most salient thing for me is in my role here on campus i am absolutely sort of constantly asking and taking the guidance of the women around me in terms of my work with men right like am i doing the right thing i'm bumping up against this little concept that's difficult for me to handle what's your advice when i think about men doing work it's sort of constantly under the navigation of women around us, as well as us doing the labor in terms of working with other men, right? Like it's not us saying, oh, we've we've learned everything. Now let's go start a men's group and do work. It's constantly like checking back, knowing that the work we're doing is inherently gendered. Does that make sense? I don't know. Just, yeah. And you're yeah. talking about being accountable to the collective, yes. right? Which is what I was trying to go back yes. on. Yeah. When I think about being accountable to the collective, I just came from a presentation on presenting an anti-colonialist framework to ending gender-based violence. And we talked about this, like, I think what's really in right now in like radical circles is decolonizing your mind. Yeah. So that's about critical consciousness, not being the same as giving back land. Right. Right. So like me reading a book (laughs) didn't give anything back to anybody. right? Right. But I get to feel good. And so it's called like a moves to innocence. Like I get to placate my feelings of inferiority. So I'm going to go read bell hooks and then go tell somebody I read bell hooks. Are we subverting power? Are we redistributing resources? I'm like, yes, activism doesn't always have to be like a fiscal. I give you money or I change to this. But how is it engaged in the collective? Because an isolated intellectual pursuit only serves you. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like how much is my activism rooted in like me getting to like sound cool or elite or like I know. That makes me think like with a critical consciousness, cis, hetero, white men are uniquely positioned to subvert power, Hmm. which then we again bump up against this label of what does an activist mean for people who identify that way? Because I feel like the more power you have socially given to you by systems of oppression, the higher your ability to subvert power is, unfortunately, right? So being able to, I guess, tango with, because it feels kind of like a dance from time to time, but being able to wrestle with utilizing your own social capital in the service of other people while not centering yourself Mm. in that is convoluted as 
I think I think it's difficult to do. But if you don't go out and do it and have people to keep you in check, then you're not going to learn that process. Right. Like we're not here to give you answers. We're not here to say, go do this. And that is activism. Mm -hmm. It's almost as much about the process as it is Mm -hmm. like what you're actually doing with your life. For sure. And I think also I think with, I guess, maybe my thoughts of like me going back into like my first maybe hesitation around doing some like, I guess, quote unquote, activist work is that. I was like, oh, I'm going to make a mistake. And it's like, well, if I don't do anything, I won't learn. So I think my message to people listening is if you haven't tried it already, it takes practice and you'll never be the best at it. So you just have to keep going and try to learn. And if you know you don't have the knowledge around what's going on when you're doing that certain work, then maybe take a step back and actually learn from people, learn from your learn from yourself. For me, this is really important because like Jake and I have even had a conversation about this and like supervision. I think about it in terms of like passivity, 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 passive, being passive, (laughs) being passive, being passive versus the savior complex. Okay, so like think about the last time you were in a room and there were people who had different identities than you, like let's say predominantly women or trans room. And they were talking about oppression, like something that happened to them on the bus stop. And you don't say anything because you've been taught to like sit down and be humble and listen and listen, sit down, be quiet and just don't take up space. Like this isn't for you, which we said 15 minutes ago. Right. (laughs) And someone gifted you the privilege of hearing that story for some reason or another, you are worthy of listening to this story. And I cannot tell you how many times privileged bodies, dudes have told me why I didn't want to share because I don't want to take up space. And it sounds like, some voyeurism. It sounds like you are consuming the stories of pain so that you can have it in your in your lot of stories to pull from. So like I've talked to Jake about this, not in this particular situation, but in terms of like how to be a dude in a group of activists right on campus with Red Whistle Brigade. And how do you locate yourself between saying I'm not going to talk because I don't want to take up too much space and being the leader? right? There's a huge area in there to explore, right? right? So what does the area look like when you let everyone talk and then contribute? Like, thank you for gifting me with letting me be in the spaces you shared that story. I also like, it makes me think about all the times I've said nothing when that happened in front of me. And now I'm thinking about those times a little bit more critically. Unfortunately, I've never heard a dude say that. So like, you feel free to take that one. Just reuse it. (laughs) Thank you for the gift. It's not that hard. Yes. Because I think like you did, we did have that conversation and you said like, you kind of have to find a way to fill the gaps, Mm -hmm. whether that's taking up a little bit of space or more than maybe than you anticipate. But I think it's contextual, kind of based on the situation. Even providing your experience as a cis white dude, like if someone's talking about, let's try to do this and you're like, that ain't going to work for my people. <laughs> like that's a contribution mm-hmm. right? in a way that some groups like Red Russell Brigade don't necessarily have the perspective on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I understand at this day and age why it can be, I'm going to say, I'm going to use the word scary, even though it's not scary, but scary to like, say something in groups like that fragility makes things scary (laughs) if you're fragile (laughs) you'll find out pretty quick i'm laughing because i'm thinking about myself (laughs) Uh, yeah because it's been you've become socialized to fear something because the body has become so fragile to resistance in anything that like says you might be slightly off here yeah well that's the the level of privilege you hold is also like proportional to how much hurt you might feel in these spaces you know what i mean even if it's the smallest like can you shut up (laughs) you're taking up too much space or like let someone else talk first and then there's some sort of defensiveness there i think that speaks to the volume of who who was i talking to The, the other day i was like 
Oh, I was talking. I was talking about a higher level administrative guy. Um, awkward. Awkward. <laughs> where it like in our program, it might have legitimately been been the first time he's ever been pushed back about his whiteness in his sixty year life or whatever. And so, if it's the first time that you're being pushed back on something that you've like held dear unconsciously potentially and you've never had the opportunity to develop how to respond to something like that then your response is going to be juvenile like there isn't any practice around responding to like identity-based crap that you perpetrate out there and so part of our advice today is to go out and be in those spaces in order to develop a way to take feedback and reduce that defensiveness because it's a really valuable skill for cis hetero white men in particular to have if you're if you're like actually passionate about doing social justice work. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I wanted to talk about is we talked about this in like our pre-meeting about bearing witness. Yeah. So I thought we could talk about that. Bearing witness. Yeah. What do you all think when I say bearing witness? Um, I think um, about like kind of seeing, well, obviously bearing witness in the ways of like seeing and hearing experiences and how that has to do with like almost just storytelling in general, but, and I guess in social justice spaces for me, it's more of like, okay, I'm going to listen and how will I react to this? And my reactions are varied based on, I guess the space, but that's all I have so far with bearing witness. Yeah. I know it's a term born out of psychology, um, or phrase, but I wrestle with bearing witness because I've seen the power of it where people hear survivors speak their stories or men in particular hear survivors who are women and men, I'm sure, tell their stories of assault. And then they go, oh, this is like, this is why we're doing this. Or they enter into men in the movement because they know somebody, they bear witness in a different way of how the system screwed them over or something like that. And then they become passionate about the issue. So I know there's a component in there of bearing witness that helps at least men get in the door for gender-based work. I wrestle with all the videos posted on Facebook of black people getting brutalized by the police as like racialized violence pornography for white people to some degree, right? But that is an, uh, another avenue of bearing witness to racialized hate in our country. So like I, I wrestle with, does the impact on social media have differences than face-to-face interactions of, yo, this happened to me. And, you know, I also hear a ton of pain of people of color and women say, I told my story and this dude was like, get over it. Or like my other black friend said it was okay. Like those are the stories that I hear as a result of bearing witness. So I don't, I don't know. It's all over the place for me. So I asked that question because... When something like a micro to a macro aggression happens to me during the day and like, you know, three have happened already today, I am reflecting. I don't go to the dudes in my life to share the story. And so something is happening here, right? Like there's some socialized process that is having me or preventing me from going to them because what I'm seeking ultimately is someone who's going to bear witness. And I think what happens is so many times in my life personally, when I've told a guy in my life that I care a lot about, the location of his energy goes everywhere else but me. Hmm. Okay, so racist on the highway start yelled at me to go home. Right. A male friend of mine is saying, where is he? <laughs> right. Like, the, what, what about me? <laughs> Why are you trying to find him? Right. Or saying, are you sure it was an American flag, like a U.S. flag? Maybe it was a Confederate flag. So now I'm wrong in the story. Right. Or now they're really upset. Like, you know, somebody on the bus calls me a tell my uh, friend who's a, a dude this story. He now is really mad at that dude. And he's telling me, I'm so mad at him. I have been rendered invisible. And so, like, I think 
activism, like we think of this word activism, we think going to marches, making signs, like leading movements. And I want to really reframe that conversation to say, like, go back to the original conversation around how do we engage in collective community and resistance? How do you be there for people? If activism is seeking liberation, which is a constant struggle, you best better know how to support people through struggle. That's what I want to advocate for is like, how do we support men to be better at supporting folks who are engaged in struggle and being there and really listening and like kind of what you were saying, Jake, to say, I see you, I hear you and not pivot the conversation onto all these other places of energy located in kind of like this anger and this fragility and this like sensibility around toxic masculinity and really reframe it to a place, an ethos of love. Like, I'm sorry that happened to you. That sucks. Right. And I think also, I guess when I thought of when I said like I would react to certain situations, I think anger was the very first one that came into my mind. And I would, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a difference between being angry at oppression than just being angry mm-hmm. and externalizing that. And I think, I think, well, yeah, I think it's different because if you're angry at oppression, it's not really, it, it might be about you, but it might also not be about you mm-hmm. at the same time. But if you're angry just in general, it's about you instead of, and so it's taking, <laughs> probably, yeah, it's, so it's like taking all the, the all the harm away. And yeah, minimizing your your pain. And so I think that's interesting. And then how even sometimes you want men to be angry at your that at your bull and they aren't. Right. And I've done that so many times. You've been trained for this. Yeah, exactly. Like that emotion is so easy for us men that we can't that then I guess for me early on in this, sometimes my friends would be like, Why aren't you angry about it? It's like cause I I guess wanted to switch off that emotion. But now it's more of like, Yeah, no, that's up when we have to talk about this now like yeah i'm even getting passionate about it right now so. <laughs> we're asking people to develop a capacity for empathy right and so when i think about men in particular that must and should look differently to foster that between each other in order to prepare ourselves for if we're gifted someone else's story and so chrissy what you were saying makes me think like there must there is an energy or uh, sort of a collectiveness amongst men for women not to tell us their stories, mm-hmm. right? That's already there. Um, and so part of activism and I think subverting some of that power is to intentionally think about the ways we as men uphold that culture where people don't want to tell it because we're nowhere yet empathizing. And that starts, I think, and maybe the hardest part of it is to do it with your other male friends, you know? Right. Right. If you're finding yourself shocked by the current state of affairs of the hashtag Me Too movement, I'm concerned for you. Yeah. What have you been doing? What have you been doing? It means that people have not been sharing their truths with With you. you. That means that you are not someone that women, folks experiencing oppression, perceive as able to bear witness. So we Mm -hmm. can't start this activism conversation without talking about these like bare bone concepts of empathy and bearing witness and being a person that is there to experience storytelling with somebody else. Even choosing to read things written by women of color, queer women of color, trans people, is a form of bearing witness too, right? Like taking their words for what they're saying can be a transformative process in terms of, oh, wait, this piece that was written 30 years ago has suggestions and solutions for what I want to do. Maybe I should read more of this stuff, but I just... Don't get too radical. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to go down <laughs> that rabbit hole too. Woo, it's so intense. <laughs> all, that, all of that is not only erased from our consciousness, but intentionally held from us, particularly in academia. And so... I don't know. We, we have been horrible at putting resources into our podcast. Maybe <laughs> maybe now's a good time to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned liberation as a constant struggle. That's like I'm 
totally taking from Angela Davis where her book Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Yeah. Um, I would I think I think that's an amazing book. Um I mean, there's so many we could list, but that one, we use the word intersectionality all the time. And she actually locates that in a very tangible space and saying every struggle is connected. So when we talk about activism, it's hard because if we're thinking about all the oppressive forces, where do I start? Where do I enter? Like, I do think it's important to find where you enter, right? Like, do you enter from like a disability justice standpoint and an environmental justice standpoint? And then know that all of those liberation movements are indeed connected to one another, but you can't constantly center every single one at the same time. There's so many people that I would perceive to be white men say like, I understand that racism exists, but I think everything is Mm class-based. And my response is, well, how are you going to work across differences in class if you discredit or don't believe that racism is a priority? That idea of connectedness, like the power for students in particular to compartmentalize is incredible. And I'm sure you've called it mental gymnastics, right? Did I? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like trying so hard to avoid the actual point that's coming at your face. If there's only one point, sometimes there's more than one. Always more than one. But yeah, let's like, I feel like we've been very like meta. Like, how do we think about a student on this campus? Like, let's go back to the original question. How do I engage in activism? What would what would we tell them? You're in it. What I'm have you still been thinking? Hold <laughs> on. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, my answer is simple. If it's a dude, I join as I join men in the movement. It's a good start. Okay. Other than that, I've got like here's books and readings and stuff. I think I would say I guess at CSU in particular, like we're over programmed as a university. There's so many programs you can go do. Mm. You have no literally no excuse mm. to not show up to at least like a keynote speech or a documentary screening. Like I guess that's maybe a st- like a small start because you can still learn a lot from those. And the fact that they hold, hold them like in LSC every week, like I think that's a good place to start. And then yes, men in the movement, I always go to. But yeah, I'll go to think about your last week. Did someone share something real with you? Did someone share something real with you? And what did you do with that knowledge, that gift? Like, how did you support them? How did you bear witness? How did you not? How did that make you think about how you socially locate in this world? Right. Like, even though I talked about critical consciousness is not enough. Right. Education is just teaching us about our own ignorances. We still need that social consciousness and critical consciousness before we can engage in any kind of action. Right. And which is going back to what you said at the beginning Mm -hmm. with, with the fourfold theory. But literally think about your life and like, How are you taking up space in your relationships, right? Like, are we talking about like what's been going on with you? Like, are you asking your friends, people who identify as dudes, as who don't, how is their well-being, right? Because if we're talking about liberation and you are not asking anybody how their well-being is, we're not in it together then. I was uh, with a group of fraternity men the other day and I was like, so you guys drink a lot (laughs) and they all laugh and like, yeah, we do. And then I was like, so is that like... A social bonding mechanism or are you self-medicating for further issues mm. like deeper issues and it took them aback and they said i think it's both or we think it's both i'm like yeah and that's real like you have to hold this whole spectrum of why do you all drink so much as fraternity men as you attack this problem of drinking so much and there's probably not even a desire to want to attack the problem from the inside right so 
I say that I share that story to say one, your first step in activism has to be some level of desire to want to create positive change, both in your own life and the lives of the people around you. I think that's really important because it's going to be a lifetime haul and it's going to be hard. <laughs> it's gonna, it's yeah. Not- and how many activism about is about not knowing if you're going to mess up, but when? Yes. Because like, it's going right. to happen every day. It's probably happened 17 times for us within this podcast of the people that we've left behind, the people that we've chosen to exclude, which are political choices. Right. Silence is political. Silence is engaging in activism, right? And so we have to think about who are going to be the people on our team that's going to help cultivate our activism. So I consider you two on my team. So thanks for that. Sweet. <laughs> Take that graduation yeah. gift. <laughs> that's a hell of, that's like the gift I've been looking for. No. Oh, I guess it goes back to like that genuine care. And I guess I want to go a little meta here, but I've learned, I guess, within relationships of like feminist friendship is that you have to express some level of vulnerability and at the same time, some playfulness. And Chrissy, you kind of named it a little earlier and how we have to do this all together and have these conversations and processes together. And so I think those two components of vulnerability and playfulness are important. And I think if you're not engaging those ways, then they're unhealthy relationships. Shout out and to it, Dr. Corey Wong. Yeah, Dr. Corey Wong, thank you. And I think I've made that pretty known in my life. Like I've had conversations with men and I'm like, how are you? And they're like, I had a lot of tests this week. I'm stressed. And even men, the movement dudes do this all the time. For it's sure. really funny. Um, And I'm like, no, how are you? <laughs> like, I don't give a about your school right now. I, yes, it can be a stressor, but literally like there's a lot of other stuff going on for you, I assume. So what is that about? And so I think that's, I guess, a way of like, yes, I can turn on this button of being playful with them, but then it's like, please be real with me because I'll be real with you next, like, or vice versa. I guess that was something I wanted to point out that I think is a start to activism. And I think also just liberation in general, especially with even with me having these dominant identities, if I can engage playfully and with vulnerability with those that maybe have similar identities or even different ones, then I think you can make connections and then that's where it grows. We also talked about how collectiveness and community are great. um, What was the word Jeff used? Preventative factors for like mental health issues. So Mm. the reason why, well, there's, I mean, there's plenty of people of color who have an experienced depression, but having a collective community of, we'll call them activists, I suppose, to combat racism is a preventative factor to experiencing depression in the first place. And so thinking about this collectivity piece is, I think, important when thinking about activism because there's so many positive benefits to it, not just ending oppression so that other people can survive in a liberatory fashion. Well, I guess that's an oxymoron so that people can be liberated. Um, Thinking about the way cis hetero white men I imagine just I don't what I don't, it's just the, empty, the vast emptiness like I can't I can't I can't wrap my mind around how empty it might feel from time to time to not have anything to work towards I don't know man I just that's kind of my <laughs> prevailing thought about I don't know I guess activism. I guess with that thought um linking to whiteness and I guess a lack of I guess they don't have to be like for white folks, especially white cis hetero men, like don't have to be, they don't have to be loyal to each other. Like there's, there's lack of loyalty within the community, quote unquote, because Mm. they know that they can survive without having people look like them. I mean, yes, they would like to have people look like them, but I could survive technically with this, all this privilege without having to be in a community. And so I think that's interesting because then also then you have like high levels of violence and depression and mental health through with 
white cis hetero men and they don't want to name it because they don't have a community to go say, hey, I'm feeling this way. So, well, I mean, they do. I they do, they do, but they don't choose yeah. to do it because it's <laughs> it's called privilege. Um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about like so often. So if we're talking about activism and we're talking about dudes, the word patriarchy is coming up for me. And I think you all talk about this in the podcast, but it's super easy to say patriarchy is a social ill for women and trans folks and gender nonconforming folks. But like, it's harder to have the discussion about how patriarchy is a social ill for dudes and their Absolutely. activism, yeah. right? Like, and how are we connecting that as the contributing factor that's keeping you away from having this very discussion? We, I mean, we try. But it's just, there's, there's, to me, when I think about it in my brain, there's like five or 10 steps between men coming to critical consciousness and then realizing that patriarchy also harms us. Mm-hmm. I think that initially the benefits far outstrip the costs okay. for men in patriarchy. But then you dig deeper, you're like, oh, wait, no. No, I think we are losing a lot more, not just literally in the lives of like through suicides and gun violence and murders all over the place, but also we're stripped of our humanity to some degree at the benefit of, I don't know. What is that? What is the the benefit (laughs) of what? Being superior to women and and gender nonconforming folks and transgender individuals. That's the bottom line of what patriarchy serves for us, right? So at the expense of our humanity, we're promised, quote unquote, by, I don't know, wealth and power fake power i don't know it's maybe it isn't five to ten steps maybe it's actually one step but men refuse to believe it or think about it that way i have nothing to add (laughs) i don't know where else to go yeah yeah, the cost benefits conversation i think it's interesting because then it's like you're benefiting for a little bit and then you get to this ultimate goal so to speak or the end and then you're just like oh well i'm what do you mean because it's like you benefit from all the power that you have, but then the power is almost just going to come and just kind of take you over and rob you of your power that you have now. Does that make sense? Like there's never really a benefit. It's almost like an illusion. Absolutely. Right. So then it's like this benefit. I'm benefiting. I'm benefiting. Oh, no, I'm. Yeah. But in turn, then no one, hmm. I'm putting myself in this weird, like, (laughs) so I'm going to take it back to you're screwed, but think about all the other people that that ocean, that wave of calamity rendered invisible mm-hmm. along the way too. Yeah. Right. So like putting it back into the collective, like if you're ultimately screwed from this process, how many of folks that don't hold that privilege identity is being lost to? So it's a very destructive wave. And like, we didn't come in here to have the answers to, to stop this like seemingly natural wave. So I don't know. I don't, is this where we like go into like, okay, well this is the books you can read. And like, no, we don't have nah, that conversation. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that though, that realization is a great starting point to build coalitions, to start attacking places of power. When men come to the realization of, oh, patriarchy hurts me too. That level of consciousness, you're you're able to go into at least some spaces, not center yourself in those conversations, but put in that emotional work because you bought into the patriarchy. Anything you want to add, Christy, before we interview you? Good. Cool. So thank you for sharing, Christy, and I'm glad that we could have that discussion. I hope you feel the same way, Carl. Absolutely. Sweet. Um, so now we are interested in giving you kind of more of an interview like we do with everyone else. So would you mind sharing your journey through social justice, Christy? Dang. I don't really know how to do that. It's not linear. doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the external vantage point. I do think, so I talked earlier about activism as a politics of survival and activism as a politics of choice. I think I'm somewhere in the middle closer to choice. So at this stage, at this stage, 
Yeah. So my family, when they first uh, immigrated here uh, early 90s, they I would say that they engaged in an activism of survival, but they would never call themselves activists. Right. The irony, the the things they had to endure and survive with a smile on their face and the determination of like, we'll just work harder. Right. Like that perspective. By the time it reached me and by the time I gained some social consciousness, I had the choice to like critique the systems. I had the place and the positionality to say, like, I I don't feel so good about this decision. Right. They didn't get to make those choices. So I think what's important for my answer to this is that it didn't start with me. It started with my parents, which started with my grandparents, which started before them. And it's really important to say that, like, wherever I am socially located, it's because of the sacrifices and the choices they had to make out of survival that I get to sit here and, like, wax poetically about some choice survival dichotomy we just created. You, When you talk about critical consciousness, is that something? How did you develop that? Yeah. Collective pain. Okay. Say more, if you don't mind. Yeah. I can't, you can't develop it on your own, right? And like all the gifts that folks have shared with me, honestly, that come from places of pain is where I, where I developed critical consciousness. Stories from my grandmother, the stories I didn't hear from my parents that were about pain that they didn't share are just as important. This doesn't really explain your answer, but I, I just got off the phone with my dad yesterday and he was laughing because he was like, uh, he calls me Kichikuti. He's like, Kichikuti, you taught me that whiteness isn't a bad word. <laughs> and I was like, I done did it. <laughs> yes. Come through, Krishna. Like he has spent so long thinking these things, but like pushing them down because whiteness has enabled him access to resources. And he feels guilty. Right. Like I can't critique the structure that I benefit from. Right. Like and I, I asked this to you both before, like, how are we similar to that which we critique? And we are very similar to whiteness as like light skinned Asian folks. And so after having all these discussions with him for the last like 20 plus years, he finally like on the phone was like, it's not a bad word. It's not about white people. It's about the system. (laughs) Right. And it was just like, yeah, it was a really cool conversation to have with this, you know, 60 year old man who has spent so long being scared to critique the white folks in his life that have let him be successful, that have let me be here. So those conversations is how I got to some sense of critical consciousness. That's dope. Sorry, my mind's blown a little bit. Um, (laughs) Well, I think it's also important to note, like hearing you talk about where you came from and ancestors and paying homage to everyone else is a form of activism. We could probably do better with that in the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Maybe specifically a decolonial activism. Mm. So when I guess when you when you said that your journey isn't linear, what do you what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think about like we, we started this conversation around um, identity saliency. So like, I think my activism journey is thinking about my activism around racial identity, my activism around my gender identity, my activism. Like I didn't even know the word first generation immigrant until a couple of years ago. Right. So I couldn't even tell you that that had informed my activism because I didn't have the language for that activism, but it had been informing my activism since forever. And so I'm just starting to learn the words to put into practice these processes that I've been thinking about that perhaps I haven't given been given time or space to think about. So like learning about cis privilege that has definitely informed my activism in perhaps harmful ways. I have excluded people from the discussion time and time and again. Once I've learned the language, I can 
can go back to those places of learning and think a little bit more critically about them. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. That's a good question because linear versus circular, west versus east. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I asked. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> that is circular. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just manipulative. <laughs> I mean, that's not my intention, but hey. <clears throat> you talk about you're ta- you you talk about collective um, thought as being an impo- uh, an important process of social justice work as a whole. Can you talk about your experiences sort of building, uh, I don't know if they're bridges, but building that collective across identities you don't hold? Mm-hmm. How different is your approach when trying to build collective with people you perceive to be white versus people you perceive to be queer and every other identity wrapped up in that? I think this is going to answer the question, but like I think I learned particularly when we're talking about a hyper-policed carceral state, okay? So we have that in the background. And then we have the fact that I identify as a POC, person of color. I have learned that I absolutely cannot and should not invoke the term POC in conversations around a hypercarceral state. My body isn't on the line like black folks' bodies are on the line. Right. Latinx bodies are on the line. So when I invoke that as a form of coalition building, like, no, I'm, I'm in it with you. I'm doing a, like injustice to coalition and collective consciousness building. And so like I've, I've gotten here because I've made the mistakes and learned about how language becomes really important in this coalition building. I hope everyone's enjoying this meat sandwich <laughs> of knowledge. Because if, if if someone comes if out, not, of this, I am. Like, yeah, if someone comes out of this podcast and be like, "I learned nothing," I'm, I would need to reach across the digital sphere and just. Ugh. It's just yeah. Seriously, I've learned from messing up, right? And we're scared to say that, right? Like. The activists of our generation and previous generation learned by messing up too. They pivoted. So if we're talking about a community organizing strategy, love community organizing strategy, particularly folks for folks who need more direction, we think about targets and we think about redirecting. As soon as you mess up, you got to redirect. You got to have a plan. One of my best friends, you, you've met her before. She was struggling. She gave me a call at the point of deep despair about black bodies being killed in the streets, right? And you know, I made the mistake of saying, "What can I do?" She said, this ain't about you, <laughs> right? She's calling me. I like, so I just thought maybe it had something to do with me. It had nothing to do with me, right? And so it's, this isn't about you. This is about just holding space. So then we go back to that bearing witness. So I've learned coalition building and I've learned this collectivity of struggle by messing up and knowing that I'm there to provide support. And let's talk about historically, let's talk about this, the 60s, civil rights, like APITA communities and black communities worked really closely together for, for liberation movements. And like, yep. we are not taught that history. Nope. Yeah. So we can't say, let's pull from the past, even though it's there, we just don't know about it. So it's on us to do that work. Indeed. And I think the first time I actually kind of met you formally is that you said to, I guess, the group, as in Red Whistle Brigade, is like, you're gonna f*** up. And I was like... words. Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, I was like, wow, like, I guess I didn't hear this ever from anyone. Um, Or... I guess, overt uh, when it comes to doing this work. And and I guess my message is to folks that want to engage with this work is, yes, we you'll do that. And if you don't do anything, you're not f***ing up. And if you're not f***ing up, well, that's the same thing. Um, if you're not doing anything, you're not practicing it. Right. The beauty is in recalibration. Like, how are you going to recalibrate? That's, right. where, that's where the work is. Like, yeah. Where do you, when... 
do you cause harm and when are you going to repair it um, is really, I think, crucial, especially for men. Because even having a conversation on Saturday with two men in the movement dudes and one of them caused some, some harm. And we we're like, how are you going to repair it? Like, that's just the whole, this is about the work. And you can be sad about it and kind of have some of those feelings around guilt and shame. But how are you going to repair the harm that you caused? Um, so I think that's another start to the process of being an activist. So now we know we're more than, well, I guess you can't say that. Yeah, I can't say that because she was isn't a man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Never mind. What? Uh, don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> Weird. Our, our, line, our line going into rapid fire questions is we know that we're more than our masculinities. It's not to say that she doesn't have any. Oh. It's true. Internalized masculinities? Is that a thing? More than our ma- Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. For me? Yeah. Well, it would be internalized. Well, what would we what call would it? it? It's not internalized oppression. It's like think. it's kind of like white. I feel like I interact with white supremacist consciousness every day. Right. So of course I interact with patriarchal consciousness. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. We know we know we're more than our patriarchal <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> are we? No, are we? We're not. <laughs> I don't know that we are. Okay. Uh, Go for it, Jake. So keeping Find this all in mind, um, <laughs> Christy, you, do you mind if we ask you some rapid fire sure. questions? Let's do it. Sweet. What's your favorite meal Dosha. of the day? Oh, like breakfast, lunch, you know what? That's yeah, too Western. I go back to my original. Yeah. Dosha. Dosha is a South Indian fermented lentil and rice crepe, for lack Ooh. of a better word. This stuff, though. Sounds so good. it's like super thin. And then we, it's like um, made on this kind of like a crepe making thing um, with ghee, clarified butter. And then you stuff it with a bunch of different things. And it's my, and then you dip it into chutneys. It's real extra and it's amazing. Sounds great. Yeah. You can get it at Barwachi's. What? I can't say it's You can eat it for good. breakfast, lunch, or dinner. <laughs> it's not such a thing as a meal, it's its own entity. What do you think about when you're not thinking about food? <laughs> Literally <just> nothing. Like- <laughs> <laughs> I go empty and then I'm asleep. <laughs> I stopped Carl and I like we had a one-on-one and literally stopped midway because I was like where do I get waffles like I just needed to know (laughs) what was your suggestion waffle lab man nice yeah Yeah, it was good chicken and waffles yeah I usually say uh, life is what happens in between meals (laughs) interesting uh favorite movie if you have one Yoda it's like this old school South Indian classic that my brother and I used to watch. It's like probably super problematic and I don't even know how to describe it to you, but it's not for you. So whatever. Cool. You have a favorite joke? <laughs> a favorite joke? Dang. Sucks to suck. <laughs> Tiffany just joke. taught me that. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany Kelly? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, she says that all she the time. She told me I should come in here and just say sucks to suck and, and then, then leave. leave. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a horrible plan. Yeah. No, I don't know. I'm not good with jokes. My sarcasm. Yeah, you knew I was going to fail this. <laughs> I just have like some like cynical sarcasm and that's about it. What makes you nervous? I have a fear of hunger. <laughs> I'm so scared okay. I'm going to be hungry. Like I ate a burrito. I had I made lamb ragu and then I ate it for lunch. And then I ate a burrito before this because I was scared that I was going to get hungry during this podcast and that would affect my ability to speak eloquently. Huh. Mm-hmm. Cool. Or interesting. Not cool. Mountains or oceans? Ocean. Okay. That sucks. <laughs> so tired of these mountains. Everyone's like, go to the mountains. It's like, you know what? It takes a lot of work to get there. Like, we have to think about it. I got to plan my outfit. Like, is it cold? Like is it hot? Like, yeah. It's like, mm. it sounds dangerous. If the ocean's not dangerous, give me a f-ing break. Okay, you can drag I'm you out there and eaten by an octopus that's yeah, bigger than your But like, there's house. so much less energy that goes into Like, you're just like, oh, I made it to the ocean. I like, I touched the water with my fingertips. Like, I have to go climb and conquer something. What? Towels, umbrellas? Yeah. You have to pack sand everywhere. Sand everywhere. Oh my gosh. 
gosh, yeah, everyone should pack like... a lunch always. <laughs> this is Christie's mantra. Did you bring food? Yeah. So obviously ocean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like, state. Yeah, I would probably go mountains. But anyways, it's not about me. Mm-hmm. Um, California or Colorado? Are these questions you all made just for me or is this like a normal? Well, we try to make them unique you know, uh, to our guests. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, Jake asked those like two questions at the beginning for everyone. So I don't feel too special there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's hard. Like people like to ask me, like, do you like India better than you like the U.S.? And it's like, uh, I don't know. I feel like it's annoying. It's, I, it's too Yeah, it's too simple. Like I like the work that I'm doing right now. I've said before, I think there's a lot of people who look like me who are doing the work I'm doing in the Bay Area in California, but there's less of that here. So it feels kind of cool to bring that perspective here. But I miss California for sure. I mean, I just like miss my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I've only got mean spirited ones from here. So I'm going to stop on my head <laughs> and behind. <laughs> if you were to have a skill, what skill would it be? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So I feel like I can dance, but I want to like really know how to dance. You know what I mean? So I'm a really good fake dancer. So if there's just music, like I look like I have rhythm, but as soon as you give me like any kind of choreography, like move right to left to like, I get so nervous and lost any kind of structure, mm. get real sweaty, get weird. So I would love to know how to like dance, dance. What genre of music would it be? <laughs> okay. So I've already thought about this. It would be so Bharatanatyam is an old school classical Indian dance form that seems like really intense and I don't want to do all that. That mixed with like a form of like hip hop with Bharatanatyam. There's like a, I could put, I don't, you all don't have like a newsletter. There's like um, an Indian, uh, an Indian um, twin couple that does this hybrid dance form. It's super cool. Sounds dope. <laughs> you a fan you? of NPR? What? <laughs> are you a fan of NPR? <laughs> what are these questions? <laughs> They're for you. <laughs> what does That's this have to do one. with anything? Nothing. That's the point. That's the point. That's why it's rapid fire. <laughs> NPR. Okay. I will give a shout out to Tiny Desk NPR. It's so <laughs> phenomenal. Maybe that's why Jake put it on. Yeah, you because introduced I led them to him me, to, so. to Tiny Desk concerts. They like tapped into like a, I don't know. They've tapped into something and they're finally hitting their stride. Like it's amazing. Totally check out Tank and the Bangas. Mm, um, the Chance, The Roots. LC. Um, who just came on? Uh, Jamila Woods just came on. Anderson Park. Um, okay, yeah. I have some other ones to it's, listen to now. I'm it's pumped. so good. So yeah. I would say yeah. yes to Tiny Desk Concerts. Another gift you've yes. given me mm-hmm. is Tiny Desk t- Concerts. Word. So we got. Chrissy, thank, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this. Gifts all over the place. Yeah. We can't mm-hmm. thank you enough. Thank so. you for dropping all these knowledge bombs. That's aggressive. I know. Yeah, that's pretty patriarchal. It's pretty masculine. <laughs> Let's talk about it later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thanks for the feedback. <laughs> all right. Thanks for having me. That will do it for this episode of Do You Even Lift Bro? Men Exercising Social Justice. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for a podcast, please email WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. Huge shout out to the partnership between the Women and Gender Advocacy Center and KCSU here at Colorado State University. These are the folks that allow us to do this podcast. For more content about masculinities, check out meninthemovement.blogspot.com. And for more information about the WGAC, go to wgac.colostate.edu. More KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Music production by Xavier Hadley, aka Zadley. Check him out at soundcloud.com slash Xavier Hadley. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-H-A-D-L-E-Y. Thanks for listening, everyone. See ya.
make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, my brain is just farty today. Might have been the burrito that you had earlier this morning. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> if you want to do activism, don't have burritos. <laughs> Unless they're consuelos. Uh, yeah, no, don't. Yeah, don't Which tell people the falsities. I've had. Um. Anyway. Um. You good? Yeah. Go for it. Well, 